This is Monitor 64. I'm Gene Rayburn, and it's our pleasure now to present a birthday salute to George Burns. The familiar theme that marked countless hours of happy listening for millions of Americans. The music that accompanied the beloved comedy team of Burns and Allen will accompany us as we spend the next hour celebrating in advance the birthday of George Burns, will be 68 this coming Monday. We'll hear tributes and greetings from some of his many, many friends. Among them, Jack Benny, Eddie Cantor, Bob Hope, George Jessel. There'll be amusing anecdotes from some of his fellow performers and associates, but most wonderful of all, we think, our guest of honor himself will grace the party with his witty and warm recollections of a career that spans 60 years and is still going strong. Throughout most of those years, George Burns has seldom, if ever, been seen in public without his identifying cigar. And he tells when and how this association began. Well, I started smoking, I think, when I was, um... When I wanted to look like an actor, that's, um... When I was about 14, I thought that, um... Having a cigar and, and, um... Well, I'll tell you a story about that. That might be funny. My mother, I, you know, I came from the Lower East Side in New York, and things were kind of bad with us. We, we were very poor. We had a big family, seven sisters and five brothers. And um, and I didn't want to work. You know, I wanted to be an actor. And, uh, and um, my mother wanted me to do something. Well, everybody wanted me to do something else, but not me. I wanted to sing. And I sang with four kids in the Peewee Quartet. And uh, before that, I started to sing when I was about seven or eight years old. I used to sing on the Staten Island Ferry. And if they didn't like it, they'd throw you overboard. And, and I got to the point that I couldn't sing unless I was ringing wet. Um, anyway, how I started to smoke. And uh, when I got to be about 14, my, my mother would tell me to go out and look for a job, and she'd give me it, 25 cents. And... Um, and they used to be, you, you could press your suit then. They'd, they'd press it in the place while you'd wait for 15 cents. And um, then you'd put it on hot. The suit would still be hot and you'd walk down the street and you wouldn't bend your knees you'd, until the suit dried out on you. And I'd uh, have my suit pressed. And then I'd buy a seven cent Recora cigar, which was the biggest thing you've ever seen in your life in those days. Couldn't lift it. And, um, and, um, I'd light the cigar and had the suit pressed. And uh, that was 22 cents, and I had three cents in my pocket, and I used to walk from 2nd Street to 42nd Street and Broadway and stand on the corner with all the actors, smoking my cigar in one hand in my pocket. Then I'd walk home again, and that was my day. You know, I'd, I wanted to be in show business, and I thought that if I... I looked like I wasn't laying off if I was smoking a cigar. So I started when I was about 14. And so did his great career. Complete with hot suit and cigar, he set off on the trail of fame and fortune. Well, the first thing I did was, uh, was the Pee Wee Quartet, as I say, and then the next thing I did was um, an act called Brown and Williams, a singing, dancing, and roller skating act. I was about 14 then, and um, uh, we were what you call the disappointment act. You know, we'd, um, we'd sit by the telephone with our grips packed in case some actor broke a leg or got sick. And I guess if they couldn't get anybody else, they'd phone us. And um, and we were very lucky in those days. We 
There were so many acts. At least once a month somebody broke a leg, and if they didn't, we'd be on the street trying to trip them. A slight exaggeration, of course, but it's true that success as a comedian didn't come to him overnight, or even over a week or month. One of his oldest friends, George Jessel, remembers that period in George's career. Long before he was an actor, you know, he was a buck dancer. And he had more partners than anybody, than Nixon, I think, in the law business. And uh, as a matter of fact, George Burns was Burns of Burns and Gary. He was Burns of Burns and Lorraine, Burnsona of uh, Burnsona and Jose. Then he was Brown of Brown and Williams, and Williams of Brown and Williams. And then, of course, he met Gracie Allen, and, of course, he didn't have to have any more partners. And they became... Uh, I believe one of the most beloved couples in the country. George Burns is a remarkable man. He's remarkable in the fact that... Uh, I, I don't know whether he's as old as Benny is. No, I don't think so. But he looks like a kid. He plays golf. And he has a Jekyll and Hyde uh, personality in one thing. George Burns is one of the sweetest men that ever lived until he gets to the bridge table. Then he is the dirtiest, meanest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. But this is his birthday, and the Lord has graced him with many years of good health. And may it please the Lord to continue so. This is his pal, Georgie Jessel. Well, as we just heard, George Burns appeared in vaudeville with a goodly number of different partners going through the trial and error period that all great performers must experience. And he tells us about the errors of one of these early trials in the team of Brown and Williams. Well, we'd sing and dance. We'd open with a song, and then we'd put on our skate. Then I'd sing a ballad. I used to sing, Always Think of Mother. I used to cry, Always think of Mother, and she'll always think of you. Your friends and many other will sometimes... I don't know. I don't remember it exactly. I can't do it unless I got my skates on. I haven't had them on for a long time. But that's a real old song. And uh, then we'd skate, and um, and the funny thing about the skating act, we played the Dewey Theater on 14th Street, or some act there. Got sick. And uh, they called us, and, they, in the, and in those days, the, uh, the, um, the theaters were slanted, uh, the stages were slanted down, down towards the footlights, you see. Now the uh, stages are straight, and uh, the orchestra is slanted up so you could see the stage, see. But in those days, it was in reverse. They were, they were silly the way you used to build those theaters. So we, we skated out there, and, and uh, naturally, I, I skated right into the footlights. And uh, I think my name was Williams then, yeah, he, he was Brown. And Brown grabbed me by the seat of the pants and pulled me back. And then, then, then I started to skate, and I went down into the footlights again, and he pulled me back again. And he's, Anyway, I fell down a couple of times, and, and uh, the next show, Brown said to me, um, Sam Brown was his name, he says, look, he says, um, he says George, I, my name is George Williams. He said, look, George, he said, when you go out there, he says, uh, don't, uh, don't face the audience. Work, uh, work sideways and you'll be able to stand up without falling down. And uh, I did that the next show, and the next show we did a perfect show, and the manager came back and closed us for cutting out the falls. <laughs> well, despite what he said, George Burns can sing without roller skates and will at the drop of a hat, or even without the drop of a hat. It's his favorite pastime. Here's one of the songs that was popular in that vaudeville era, Don't Take Me Home. Augustus J. McCann, McCann was a henpecked married man. man. He has been fighting with his wife since married life began. began. One night at half past three, three. while out upon a spree, three. a motor knocked him down and out and nearly broke his knee. Nearly broke his knee. One man jumped up and said, 
I think this bloke is dead. But when he said, let's take him home, McCann jumped up and said, he hollered, don't take me home. Oh, please don't take me home. Tell me, what did I do to you? Oh, 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 have a little pity. I'm a poor married man. You say, child, peace, I roam. I'm with you most anything you do, but please don't take me home. birthday boy himself, George Burns, with one of the old-time favorites, and we'll continue this birthday program for George in just a minute. So add a can of whims today. It happens to the best of car engines. Suddenly, because of accumulated gums and other deposits, sticking hydraulic valve lifters start to clatter. The remedy? Add a can of Wins engine tune-up. Wins is guaranteed to freeze sticking hydraulic valve lifters in ten minutes, driving time or your money back. Ask for Wynn's engine tune-up where you get gas or service. So add a can of Wynn's today. Monitor available almost everywhere you go in the USA on NBC. Kingman, Arizona, and the surrounding area. Tune us in on station KAAA. All across America, you're on the Monitor Beacon. Another 64, and here's Jonathan Winters for Chrysler. Today we are talking to Dr. Fritz von Hassenpfeffer, a leading atomic scientist. As a scientist, he feels he must tell everyone about Chrysler Corporation's certified car care, the health plan for cars. Right, doctor? Right. You see, when I was a little boy, I didn't want to be an atomic scientist. I wanted to be a mechanic like my mother. 
I envy mechanics, especially the highly trained ones available at all Chrysler, Plymouth, and Dodge dealers. Why did you decide not mechanic? Decide? Why, you silly wiener schnitzel? I flunked mechanic school. I couldn't tell a piston from a banana. In fact, my car is running on 12 bananas right now. The only mechanics I can count on are those who use Mopar on Chrysler parts, along with the certified car care plan. Well, look, doctor, you flunked mechanics school, and yet you masterminded last week's successful rocket launching. With my car, it's precision maintenance. With launching the rockets, those are just lucky guesses. <laughs> Gene Rayburn again as Monitor brings you part two of our birthday salute to George Burns. We heard George reminisce about one of his first partners. Now, one of the partners who followed reminisces about their experiences on the vaudeville tour. He's Sid Gary of Burns and Gary. We were billed singing, talking, and dancing. We omitted nothing from the act. Uh, we figured one of the three might get the audience. On our show, the same acts traveled together for a hundred weeks. Burns said to me, he said, Sid, I hope there's a girl like Donna Bill for company. We can pal around with some people. Well, we looked in the variety to see who was on our show. The opening week was Atlanta, Georgia, and we're lucky. An act called Sweet, Sweet, Sweeties, 13 girls. And I think the juvenile in the act was a man by the name of Archie Leach. That is Cary Grant. He was then in this girl act. So Byrne says to me, Sid, you got your eye on some gal? And I says, yes. Uh, we, well, we, we became friendly, George and I became friendly with two pretty girls, but stupid and dumb, gullible. They couldn't converse on anything but theatrical makeup. Well, about the 35th week, we're playing Fort Worth, Texas. George and I take an apartment for the week with a kitchen, and all the utensils were in the kitchen. After the first show... On a Monday matinee, Byrne says to his girlfriend, Dorothy, here's two dollars. Go out and buy some chicken. Tonight, after the show, you'll make some chicken for Sid and I in the apartment. These girls take their makeup off. They go out in the butcher shop, and they bring home two live chickens. Now, when they get them home, they realize, how can we broil them? How can we kill them? They went out in a drugstore, and they bought a can of some sort of chloroform. They bring home this chloroform, they saturate this chloroform on a Turkish towel, they hold this towel to the chicken's nose, and they knock both chickens out. Now they pluck the feathers. They left them on a plate on the kitchen table. They had to go back and do two more shows. Finally, the last show comes around. Byrne says, let's go home and get some chicken. We get to the apartment, we put the key in the door, we put on the lights... We start running out of the apartment. Two plucked naked chickens were running around the floor. We thought they were rats. We ran out of the room. Naked chickens running around the floor. That's how stupid these girls were. <laughs> and it's true. And George, may I say, I wish you a very, very happy birthday. <laughs> From Burns and Gary on to Burns and Lorraine, and then... No more uncooked, unfeathered chickens running around on the floor. George met the partner who was to stay with him from that day to this. Gracie Allen. That day was in 1922. Well, I met her in Union Hill. I was playing a theater there. And um, uh, there was a girl uh, headlining the bill at that time. Her name was Rena Arnold. And I was working with Billy Lorraine. 
And I was doing a singing and dancing act, and we did imitations of Broadway stars. We called ourselves uh, Burns and Lorraine, Broadway Thieves. In other words, we stole bits from, uh, from all these fellas. And we did imitations of Georgie White and George M. Cohen and Val Jolson and Eddie Cantor and Eddie Leonard. And um, we weren't very good because we've, we've never seen these fellas. We thought that's the way they worked, you know, so. And, um, and the act wasn't getting any place. And we were going to split up. And Gracie came backstage to visit this girlfriend of ours, Rena Arnold, who was headlining the bill at the time. And um, she knew that we were splitting up. And she told Gracie. And Gracie was looking for a partner at the time. In fact, Gracie wasn't even looking for a partner. She was going to secretarial school. She was going to be a secretary. She came from California with Larry Riley at the Dead Irish Acts. And she didn't know how to go about getting a job. You know, she just sat home. She thought somebody's going to knock on her door and say, well, how would you like to go to work? You know, she didn't know that you go around to booking offices and you smoke cigars and wear hot suits. And uh, so um, this Rena Arnold told her that we were going to split up. So um, she told Gracie to go out front and... and, and, and um, see the act and she says my advice to you is to work with the fella that does Jolson and Eddie Cantor and I wasn't the fella I did I did the dancing see I did Georgie White and Pat Rooney and so she went out front and she saw the act and and uh, she says no I'd rather work with the other fella but the fella that did the Pat Rooney and that's how we met and uh, three weeks later we we worked together we opened at the um Theater in Brooklyn, I don't know. We've got $5 a piece, I think. From that start in Brooklyn, Burns and Allen continued on the long, circuitous route that was to take them to the ultimate in vaudeville bookings, the Palace in New York. But en route, there was time for fun as well as hard work. Blossom Seeley, who with her late husband, Benny Fields, was one of the headliners of that era, remembers one particular incident. There are so many things to tell about George Burns. So many dear, wonderful things. In Detroit, Michigan, we were playing on the same bill, and he um, he loves to heckle you. And he loved to heckle me because at that time, uh, you know, when I was on stage, I wanted everything very quiet and wonderful. I'm doing a very quiet, torchy song, and in the entrance, I hear loud talking. George Burns is in there shouting, drop that backdrop down, give me that baby spot, put a little more light. And I looked off stage, and I said, I said, just a moment, and I stopped the song, and I said, um, that is George Burns in the front entrance there, wants to take a bow. I said, George, will you come out here? He said, yes, I haven't bowed in five minutes. So out he came and bowed. Oh, he was, uh, he would do anything to disturb you, not to hurt you, ever. Just to disturb you and heckle you, and with his wonderful sense of humor. There's so much to tell about George Burns, about his... Great things, not only his uh, generosity and his friendship for you, but the wonderful things he does, which one never hears of, unless you know personally. George may have been a prankster. As a matter of fact, he still has that reputation. But he never neglected his craft and always worked to perfect the act. Realizing that Gracie got the laughs more readily than he did, he willingly took the role of straight man and wrote the funny lines for her. We developed what we called... Illogical logic. It made sense to Gracie, but it didn't make sense to anybody else. And uh, and it, uh, and she could tell the wildest kind of a joke, and and you'd believe her because Gracie was never funny. She was she was charming and she was a great actress. She was not a comedian. 
See, in other words, uh, 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 B. Lily is a funny woman. She's great, but she's funny. Gracie wasn't funny. Gracie wore beautiful clothes, and and, and uh, her sincerity uh, made you believe any kind of a wild story, like uh, the wildest. Uh, we tell the wildest joke. Uh, here's one of the jokes we told in show business. In Baltimore, like Gracie, I'd say to her, she says, I'm sorry my sister isn't here tonight. That's, she says she couldn't come on account of the canary. This is the canary, and... Um, I want you to listen to some of my lines. They were nothing while I'm telling this joke. This, she, she couldn't come across the canary. I said, the canary? She said, the canary is hatching an ostrich egg. I said, the canary is hatching an ostrich egg. She says, yeah, but the canary is too small to cover the egg. So I'd say, so? She says, so my sister is sitting on the egg and holding the canary in her lap. But they would accept that from Gracie because, they, you know, they believed that she believed it. For instance, if Gracie would take um, the pepper and salt shaker and put the pepper in the salt shaker and the salt in the pepper shaker, and you'd say, why do you do that? You know, she, she'd feel sorry for you for asking such a silly question. Then she'd tell you why. She, because people always get mixed up, and now when they do, they're right. So you see, to Gracie, it, it made. There was a semblance of sense there. George will agree that there was a great deal of sense in what he did three years after the team's, uh, team of Burns and Allen was formed. He proposed. And it wasn't just because he owed her $200, which he did, or so he says. At any rate, they were married, and the act continued to prosper. The big break, however, didn't come from vaudeville. Uh, how we really uh, got to be uh, uh, something was accidental. We, uh, we came off a boat. We went to Europe every year, and we played the uh, Victoria Palace. There was no Palladium at that time. And, uh, we were a big hit in Europe. And we went on radio in Europe, and we were on radio in Europe before we were on radio here. And we knew that if we ever got a chance to go on radio here, they would like us because they did like us in England. Uh, we were on BBC. And um, anyway, I got off the boat, and, and uh, Arthur Lyons gave a party this night. He's an agent. And I wonder we went up to the party, and... Uh, and uh, um, and we were what you, Gracie and I were what you call a street corner act. Man and woman act, you know. Drop up a street and we'd walk out in one and we'd tell our jokes. So uh, I went to this party and, um, and um, uh, when I got there, um, Arthur Lyons told me that, um, asked me how would I like to make $1,700. I never heard of $1,700. I said, doing what? He says, making a short tomorrow for Paramount. He says, can you... Stand up and tell jokes for nine minutes. I says for seventeen hundred dollars, I can stand up and tell jokes for an hour. So he said Fred Allen is supposed to make do the short for Paramount tomorrow, and he's sick. Will you go over and take his place? So I said sure, and I went over and uh, walked in the Paramount Studios, which was in Long Island, and then he had an interior of a living room, which didn't fit with our kind of dialogue because we're supposed to be on the street. So we had to improvise, and, and uh, uh, oh, I came in, and there was a fellow called Murray Roth there uh, that I went to school with. And I said, what are you doing here? He says, I'm, in, I'm directing the, the, the short that you're making. I says, you're kidding. He says, yeah, I'm a director. I said, you're not in show business. I remember you. You know nothing. You couldn't sing. You couldn't dance. He says, I'm the director. I says, I don't believe it. He says, you don't. Uh, lights, and they turned on the lights. He says, out. He says, out. He says, you say, I'm the director. I said, I believe them. Well, anyway, we, uh, we, uh, we walked on, and I improvised sort of a thing. Gracie looked in matchboxes and cigar boxes and looked into the, the, the vase of flies. What are you looking for? She's the audience. 
And I said, the audience, you see that little camera out there? See that little thing that's looking at us? You look right into that uh, lens and that's the audience. She said, oh, all right. I says, are you standing in the right spot? And she says, yes. And I says, how's your brother? And Gracie told me how her brother was for about nine minutes. And in the middle of the nine minutes, I looked at my watch. And I says, well, our nine minutes are up. I says, ladies and gentlemen, we just made $1,700. Say goodbye to everybody, Gracie. And Gracie waved, and I waved. And that was the finish of the short. And the short turned out to be great. <laughs> A brief pause now, then on with our monitor birthday salute to George Burns. You'll hear more of the comedy of Burns and Allen, more of George's delightful reminiscing, and greetings from Jack Benny, Bob Hope, Eddie Cantor, and others. Gene Rayburn here. This is the NBC Radio Network. This is Monitor, and here's Jonathan Winters for Chrysler. Young man, is this the place where they have the Chrysler Corporation certified car care plan? Yes, ma'am. All Chrysler, Plymouth, and Dodge dealers have the CCC plan. The one that's like a health plan for cars? That's right, and of course we use Mopar and Chrysler Parts. Good. See what I've got with me here? I took the engine out of my car and wheeled it down here in my grandson's toy wagon. Well, that's ridiculous. Why didn't you bring the whole car down here? What, and lose my parking space? <laughs> Gene Rayburn once again with Monitor 64, and here is part three of our birthday salute to George Burns. <laughs> When we paused at the mid-hour point, we had arrived at that point in George's career, in the career of Burns and Allen, when they were about to take their biggest step on the road to stardom, their debut in radio. George remembers it most clearly. Well, we were, uh, we were playing the Palace Theater, and Eddie Cantor was on the bill. And, uh, and uh, Jessalyn Cantor, and we were on the bill, too. We were, that was the, uh, the, uh, that great show that stayed there nine weeks. And... Uh, and uh, Right after that, two weeks later, the Palace Theater closed. And uh, you know the story of the Palace Theater? It's, 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 it's grown to such proportions that everybody thinks it was... The theater was great out for when you were on the stage, it was great. But backstage, it was awful. You know, the elevator never worked. Nothing in the bathroom worked. It was just murder. And, and there were two stars on the bill. Uh, the, they were always painting. The, uh, the star didn't mind being in number three or number four dressing room. But if you put two stars on the bill, and there was one and two, and you put the... And they were both the same dressing rooms. You put one star had one, and the other star had number two dressing room, they wouldn't work. So whenever there were two big stars on the bill, they were they always got painters out, and they were always painting these two dressing rooms. And they didn't mind three and four, but when I got the one or two, it was a problem. Well, anyway, so Cantor was doing the Chase Assembled show. And he asked me, could Gracie go on this pro program? And he couldn't use me because what I did, he could do. So I said, sure, you can uh, be glad to. Uh, he says, I'd like to use her for a four-minute spot. I says, you can use her, providing you use one of my spots. He says, I'd love it. So Gracie went on, and Cantor says, how was your brother? And Gracie spoke for four minutes, and she was a riot. So then the following week, Gracie and I went on the Rudy Valley program. And uh, we did very well. And then the next week, we went on with Guy Lombardo. And we stayed with him for about... Oh, I forget. About a year, maybe two years. And then he left the show and we took the show over. 
And then we stayed in radio for about 18, 19 years. And here's a typical sample of the wonderfully wacky comedy with which they enchanted audiences for all those years. Uh, George! George! George, could I speak to you for a moment? Sure, Gracie. What is it? Uh, do you think you'll grow much taller today? Grow taller? Why? Well, I used to go to school with a girl named Millicent Davis, yes. and we always tried to outdo each other, and when she got married, she wrote and said that her husband was six feet tall. Yeah. So, I wrote back and said that you were six feet six, and now she's coming to see us and you aren't. Six feet six? Yeah. You expect me to grow another foot? No, you've got plenty of feet. Just grow taller. <laughs> Well, I've done all the growing I'm going to. George, I don't ask you many favors. Grow a little for me. <laughs> Not now. I'm fixing the furnace. I'll grow later. <laughs> I've got it. What? When Millicent comes, you get behind a screen and stand on a chair. And then you look six feet six. Why do I say I'm behind the screen? Uh, say the cleaner forgot to return your pants. <laughs> What happens if Millicent looks behind the screen? What kind of girls do you think I went to school with? Forget it, it won't work. What else did you tell this woman about me? Well, I, I, I told her that you were a big game hunter mm. and that you had shoulders a yard wide. Shoulders and... a yard wide? Mm -hmm. She'll, uh, she'll, uh, she'll want to see them. So I'll open the closet and show them to her. <laughs> Look, Gracie, face the truth. Millicent Davis married a bigger, stronger man than you did. Admit it to her. So what? No, sir. I'll die before I let that woman get ahead of me. She'll never stop bragging. I take it you and Millicent didn't, uh, didn't get along too well back in school. Well, how would you feel if a girl came along and stole all your boyfriends just because she was cuter and prettier than you? Hmm, I wouldn't like it. Well, neither did Millicent. <laughs> Although George wrote most of the material, not all the funny things were scripted. There were some unexpected situations that arose, too. We were doing, we were doing a radio show, and um, in the middle of the thing, you know, you'd read your scripts, the lights went out. You know, and everybody got panicky, they didn't know what to do. And, uh, it was very simple for us. Uh, we were panicky for a minute, and I says, ladies and gentlemen, the lights are out, and... I says, here's our vaudeville like Gracie, how's your brother? And Gracie spoke until the lights went on. And it was as simple as that. I think one of the funniest stories in radio is, I won't mention his name, but to be a producer in radio is, was really nothing. You know, he'd, uh, he'd uh, stand behind that, uh, the control room, which had a, a glass window, and the fellow would point at you. That meant you got started. And you'd start, and then uh, if you were slow... Uh, he would uh, sort of move his hands fast, meaning that he wanted you to go faster. And if you were going too fast, he would sort of spread his hands slowly for you to slow up. And then at the finish, if you were on time, he'd touch his nose, meaning that you were on the nose. And that's all a producer had to do in those days. So we got this fella that, 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 that just came from Harvard, and he wanted to produce... So I told him, I said, there's nothing to produce. All they can do is point to us or spread your hands slowly or work them fast or touch your nose. I says, now, if you know those four things, you're producing our show. But he didn't want to do that, see? So he stood in back of the, uh, this window and um, we're ready to start. 
and he sort of spread his legs apart and he was ready to produce and he had the stopwatch in one hand and then he sort of held his finger up ready to point to us and when he pointed to us he sort of went go and he hit the window with his finger and, and broke his finger he, that was the end of his producing <laughs> Hell, uh, the producer was finished but Burns and Allen went on stronger than ever 19 years of radio and then years of television one of their associates in this latter medium, although not a producer, also ran into trouble, but it was all in good fun, part of the script. Here he is now to tell of a bit of friendly revenge on his part, on his part, Harry Von Zell. I think in all honesty I should point out that George possesses what you might call a bit of a mean streak. You'll remember, maybe, that in our TV series, for absolutely no reason at all, George fired me every week for nearly ten years. And this reduced me to a sense of insecurity that you just couldn't imagine. I don't think I'll ever recover from it. Actually, as a result of that experience, one of the high points in my career, I think, came that day when George took us all to lunch, the regulars of the cast, and gave us some news. He said to us, Kids, I think you ought to know about this now. When we finish this season, it's curtains. Gracie is going to retire. Well, naturally, this came as a sort of a shock to all of us, but my reaction, almost subconsciously automatic, was, was peculiar. I grabbed George by the arm and leaned toward him and said, George, I've been waiting for this for ten years. You're fired. <laughs> George, happy birthday, and long may you wave. Earlier in the hour, we told you that George loves singing, but you really have to hear him talk about the subject to judge how much it means to him. You see, I really like to sing. I love to sing. And, and, and I think everybody loves to sing. And I don't care whether the people like my singing or not. I like it. I enjoy singing, you see. So I, I never have a problem being a hit. You see, the audience don't have to applaud for me because I know I'm doing well. Sinatra has to be a hit because they have to applaud him. At the finish, that's how he tells he's doing. I'm doing fine. And without singing any of Sinatra's songs. And to prove it, George sings a song that was written before Frank was born. Actually, it's Sophie Tucker's song, but we're sure she won't mind. Today, incidentally, is her birthday. Sweethearts in the country town, the neighbors say, lived happily the whole day long. Until one day he told her he must go away, she wondered then what could be wrong. He said, you know it's true, I love you best of all, and yet it's best that we should part. Just as he went away, they heard his sweetheart say, though it almost broke her heart. Some of these days, 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 you're gonna miss me, honey. Some of these days, 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 you're gonna feel so lonely. You'll miss my heart, miss my kiss, miss me only. When you go away, you feel so lonely. For me only, you know, honey, you've had your way. And when you say goodbye, we'll wipe that tear from your eye. You're gonna miss your little baby. Some of these days.
Some of these days, 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 you're gonna miss me, honey. Some of these days, 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 you're gonna feel so lonely. You'll miss my hugging. You'll miss my kissing. You'll miss me, honey. When you're away, you're away. You feel so lonely just for me only. For you know, honey, you have had your way. And when you leave me, Oh, George, what style and what dash, what savoir faire. Well, we're going to have to pause here for a few moments, but uh, we'll return with the concluding part of our birthday tribute to George Burns as soon as we can after informing you that we're all on the monitor beacon. Now the fourth and final part of Monitor's birthday salute to George Burns. Before we move along and present some of the birthday greetings that have poured in from his friends, George would like to get in a few last words about his favorite subject, music. He mentions the names of some of the great songs he has sung. In the heart of a cherry. It's, it's still whistling, that in Altoona. In the heart of a cherry, stony heart of a cherry. Well, it's a ballad, you need a little, a few violins which I haven't got with me. And, um, but I've had a lot of hits, like Tiger Girl, and uh, I'll be waiting for your bill when you come back from San Juan Hill, and songs that have been sweeping the country. The master of the understated joke. And now that Gracie has retired from the act and from show business completely, how does the master of the Burns household, George, that is, fare at home? Does his comedy go over as well as there as in the nightclubs he's been playing recently? It's good to have it, you know, because... Uh, but sometimes Gracie thinks I'm terribly dull. You know, uh, I come home and... And, uh, and, uh, and scandal doesn't interest me very much, you know, and women love it. You know, they love to know what's cooking and, and uh, can't remember anything, see? But I do remember it when you tell it. See, if you go to tell me a story, and if I heard it before, I'll tell you, you know, I says... It, I know it. And um, so uh, I'm sitting home, and uh, some, we'll have some people at, uh, for dinner. And somebody tells us something. I said, I know, I, I know that. And, 
And then the, the somebody will say something else. I says, oh, yes, I know that he left his wife. And, and yeah. Oh, yes, uh, the, about the woman, yeah, and the girl. Yeah. Uh, isn't that too bad? Oh, the shooting, yes, yes, I know that. And then when the people leave, Gracie wants to kill me. She says, why don't you tell me that stuff? He says, we come over you. She says, I'm dying to find out about who shot that. I said, well, I just, you know, once they tell it to me, it's gone. I, you know, I just don't remember it. So, uh, so sometimes I guess I'm a pretty dull husband. A highly doubtful statement, especially when you hear what his daughter Sandra has to say. Well, I think he's uh, even funnier at home than any other time. His humor is continuous in everything. He's great with my kids who know all of his routines, his songs, and they think that uh, they think he is today's popular singer and that his songs were just written. They know them all and they've taught them to their friends. When they were in Las Vegas to see him, he brought them up on the stage and they didn't know it. When they got up there, they they were too... It was too fast for them to be afraid, and they went right into the song. The next night, uh, he introduced them again, but he said that he wasn't going to have them up on the stage, and they were a little bit disappointed, but a little panic-stricken, too. Happy birthday, Daddy, from Sandy and your grandchildren. Son Ronnie has a few words to say, too. I would say that uh, you certainly couldn't ask for a better father and an understanding father, because... uh, you know, as my sister said before, that he carries his humor home with him and it's in his everyday life. And if you can make all the tragedies in life look a little better with humor, it's uh, it's just a better day. So here I'd like to say to Dad uh, a very, very happy birthday and many more. The list of well-wishers is too long for all of them to be heard in the time we've allotted, but here... Uh... A few of his oldest and closest friends. First, Eddie Cantor, who, despite the fact that he's been ailing recently, wouldn't let the opportunity to greet his friend pass. Happy birthday, George. To me, you'll always be the George Burns that first appeared on my radio program back in 1931. I used Gracie Allen on my Chaser Sanborn program once... And she made such a big hit. I said, why don't you bring on George Burns? She says, oh, he won't go. He doesn't think radio is anything. Because we put on Burns and Allen together the following week. And they were just the greatest team I've ever worked with. Happy birthday from Eddie Cantor. And another of the all-time great entertainers, Bob Hope. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be included in this tribute to uh, one of the outstanding gypsies of uh, vaudeville, motion pictures, and uh, everything. And of course, George is not only one of our great comics, but also a great straight man, a great mechanic of our business, and there's uh, only a few left. He's uh, one of the few uh, singers we have that sings uh, from a crouch and uh, carries his own net. He's a delightful, delightful fellow. Happy birthday, George. Finally, the man who is probably closest of all to George Burns, Jack Benny. I must say one thing. If he's 68, I'm really 39. But you know, it has been said, and it's true, that George Burns can make me laugh doing practically nothing. 
And yet, I can't make him laugh. So I'm certainly not going to try and be funny tonight. I'm just going to wish him a very happy birthday and to say that when he's 78, I'll be 41. Happy birthday, George. Well, the party's almost over. We could air more birthday greetings from George's friends, but since, as we've mentioned before, singing is what seems to make him happiest, let's have him sing once more. And this is one of his biggest favorites. He'll prove that he can fracture audiences in French as well as in English. George Burns will be 68 on Monday, but he's still very much in show business, still leads a full and active life. He tells us about a typical day. I come to work about about 9.30, and uh, I work until about 1.00. And then I go to the club and I have lunch, sit at the table and hear some interesting things. And then about uh, 2.30, I play a little bridge, play to 4.30. Then I go home, I see my wife, try to remember something that <laughs> she'd be interested in. And then I lie down, take a little sleep for about an hour, get up, have a nice double martini have my dinner all go out usually I, I go to parties I take a piano player with me only plays a marquee so my life is nice 
And if our wishes and the wishes of millions of other admirers have any power, life will continue to be nice for George Burns. In turn, he will continue to enrich our lives with a wonderful original humor that has made us the happier for hearing it all through the many years he's been with us. And so from Gene Rayburn and everyone else at Monitor and NBC, happy birthday, George Burns, and many, many happy returns of the day. Boston's Memorial to John F. Kennedy tomorrow on the NBC Radio Network.